now been 20 years, I can't believe it, 20 years since one of my all-time favorite Disney movies came out, The Lion King. 1994, look at that, all its glory, right? Anybody else a Lion King fan? Love The Lion King, so good. This was one of those that I had pretty much memorized as a kid. Right. This if, if your parents have young children now, maybe you're starting to get acquainted with the fact that kids will just watch it over and over and over again. Right. And this is one of those that me and my brother would always watch. I loved the story. I loved the characters. Um, and most of all, you got to love that soundtrack. Right. The, the music from The Lion King is one of the most iconic soundtracks of all Disney movies. It's so good. And one of the best songs from the movie is the song Akuna Matata. Right. If we if we wanted to this morning, we could probably all sing it from memory because of how iconic that song has been. I won't do that to you this morning. But Akuna Matata is such a such a great part of that movie. And, and what had happened was the lion cub Simba. Right. He went through this terrible and traumatic experience of watching his dad die and believing that it was his fault. Right. That's really heavy stuff, by the way, for a kid's movie, isn't it? He, he thinks his dad's death is his fault. And so he runs away. And he encounters a meerkat and a warthog, right? The comedic relief of the movie, Timon and Pumbaa. And they begin this sequence where they're teaching him about this phrase, Akuna Matata, which means no worries, right? And so the song goes, it means no worries for the rest of our days. It's our problem-free philosophy, Akuna Matata. And so Simba spends a good portion of his life Living and avoiding the problems that he had faced before finally being confronted with the fact that he couldn't run away forever. Right? He was going to have to go back and face the lions. Now, if we are honest, we are a lot like Simba. When we face an incredible difficulty, we simply wish it would all go away. We long for an Akuna Matata sort of life. But as exiles in a broken world, we Christians are also like Simba. And the fact that the trials that we face aren't really avoidable, right? There's not a carefree place in this current world. There is no escape from sin and the effects of the fall. Not yet. And the Jewish exiles, as we're going to see this morning in Daniel, they're experiencing something very similar. They were in captivity, longing for freedom, longing for a no worries sort of life. But they, they faced oppression. They were slaves to the Babylonians and they struggled as exiles in a home that was not yet their own. So as we continue our series this morning called Kingdom in Exile, where we've been working through the book of Daniel, we come to Daniel chapter six. And so if you would please turn with me now to Daniel chapter six. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles, which you'll find on the floor around your seat, that's on page 743. And if you don't have a Bible, um, please take that with you. That, consider that our gift to you. We, we believe the word of God is, is um, important and life-giving to us, and, and it's our authority um, and what we gather around on Sundays. And so um, take that with you as our gift to you if you don't have one. But Daniel chapter 6. Now, this is an important and a very well-known narrative in the midst of this book of Daniel. In fact, because it is such a popular story, um, it actually brings real danger to us. As we think, if, if you're like me, we think we've mastered this story about Daniel and the lion's den a long time ago. Maybe even as children. We've heard this one, probably. Um, we've grown accustomed to it. But I believe that God wants to gracious, graciously show us this morning even more of the riches and goodness of what he has in mind in Daniel 6 than perhaps we've been fully aware of before. 
So let's walk through this story this morning, praying for open hearts with fresh eyes to see what God has in store for us from his word. So if you would, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Let's skip ahead to verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day... The king arose and went in haste to the den of lions as he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Let's pick up once more in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we come on the scene in Daniel 6 and God's people are in exile. 
We've seen several stories already throughout the book of Daniel about how God has continued to be faithful to his people, to exemplify his faithfulness to them. And then we get to chapter 6. And my tendency for years was to look at this simply as Daniel serving as an example for us. Most of us, if we're honest, including myself, have moralized this story to the point of, see how good Daniel is? Go be like him, and God will bless you just like he blessed him. But I submit to you this morning that that's absolutely not the point of the story. Don't get me wrong, Daniel is commendable. But as he is the one writing Daniel 6, by the way, he's writing this, he's doing so to point to and commend his God. His main point is not be like me, but rather have hope in the same God. And we miss the point of the chapter if we come away saying, look how great Daniel is, rather than look how great the Lord is. So the theme of this chapter is not so much live faithfully and God will show up and bless you, but rather God's faithfulness gives you hope to live faithfully in the midst of trials. It is God's faithfulness towards us that inspires faithful living from us. This is how we know this story isn't so much about Daniel, but ultimately something much bigger. So look at chapter six with me. These first few verses, we see the Lord's favor shown to Daniel and we see the jealousy of his enemies. We see Daniel rising through leadership. There's only 120 of these satraps, which are these smaller rulers that are in charge of tribute collection and security. And above them, there's only three presidents, right? And one of them is Daniel. One of the Hebrew people is one of the top dogs in the nation. One of the exiles has made it up to the top three. And then, as God continues to see the favor of the Lord, the king has decided to exalt him even more and make him head over the whole shebang. So these administrators were jealous of Daniel, the Hebrew's success, and sought a plan to bring him to ruin. He's been doing some good stuff. We read that the kingdom was better because of Daniel. Things were flourishing under his leadership, and God caused him to be a blessing to Babylon. So he's faithfully living in light of the faithfulness God has shown him. He's actually the perfect case study for what we see in Jeremiah 29. Now, I I know many of you may not have been here several weeks ago, but in God's providence, I actually preached on Jeremiah 29 several weeks ago. Um, And until the last couple weeks, I had no idea how these two things were connected. But in Jeremiah 29, God gives instructions to the Jews who are about to go into exile. And he says two things in particular. He says, you are to neither assimilate into the culture, nor are you to avoid it. You are not to um, lose your uniqueness or your identity as the people of God, assimilating into the culture, but also you're not to avoid the culture. God calls you to be a blessing to the Babylonians. And what happens is Daniel moves in and becomes a part of the city. He maintains his uniqueness while working for the prosperity of the city. He excelled in this pagan structure, but everyone knows what he stands for. So he's the perfect case study for what the Lord commanded in Jeremiah 29. And in verse 4, here in Daniel 6, we read that they could find no ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful. He was faithful to Babylon. Then, in verse 5, we see that Daniel's character as a man of God living in exile was so exemplary that they knew that any attack would actually have to come against the law of his God. See, this is the beginning of really seeing that this story isn't so much about Daniel. The problem wasn't so much his faithfulness, but who his faith was in. These people have a problem with the God of Daniel. 
And then in, in the next verses, we see the plot against Daniel unfold. And, and they figured out that they could get what they want by appealing to the king's ego. So they said, for the next month, don't let anyone petition, don't let anybody say any prayers to any god or man except for you, O king, on threat of death in the lion's den. And then the king responds almost immediately. He doesn't even hesitate, does he? He says, hey, that sounds pretty good. I like that. I like the sound of that. It's kind of like a story I heard about Muhammad Ali um, recently. And, and Muhammad Ali, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of him, um, who maybe have lived under a rock, I don't know. Um, he was one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time, right? He's famous throughout the, the whole world to this very day. Um, and, and supporters have lavished him, right, with, with praise over his skills and, and apparent invincibility, right, because he's such a great boxer. He, he, he was such a great boxer for many years. And, and there's a story um, that took place, uh, I think, 20, 30 years ago about how Muhammad Ali, right, kind of coming out of his prime, um, he, he's got this ego kind of filled with pride from, from all his supporters, and he, he boards an airplane, and he goes and he takes his seat. And after he sits down... The flight attendant comes by, like flight attendants tend to do if you've ever flown on an airplane, and says, Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to buckle your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali turns to her and said, Ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which, in the providence of God and the quick wit of the flight attendant, she turned back to him and said, Sir, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) So his pride had got to him. So Darius, in his kingly pride gives in to what these leaders are asking. He says, hey, that sounds fantastic. Why not? And he's likely seeing this as a means of uniting the realm by identifying himself as the sole mediator between the people and the gods, their source of every blessing. And yet Daniel continues to pray to the Lord God alone. Just as the Hebrews in Daniel 3 refused to bow down to the image of the king, Daniel refuses to pray to Darius because the Lord is the highest of kings. And then we get down here to verse 10. And this is fantastic. I just learned this. This is fascinating to me. Um, but Daniel 10 here correlates with something we really see elsewhere in Scripture. Um, we see in 1 Kings chapter 8 um, a prayer that really seems to line up with what's, what Daniel's doing here. And so I want you to turn with me. Um, we're going to keep our finger there in Daniel 6. We're going to go backwards to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings 8, we're going to pick up in verse 46. 1 Kings 8, 46. And what we see is we see Solomon here. King Solomon, he was the son of David the king. And he's the one that the Lord used to build the temple. So if you're familiar with this story, um, Solomon is building the temple. He's dedicating his temple. He's praying and this long prayer of dedication. And right here, we're going to pick up where specifically God God is um, showing that that Solomon is praying about the future of God's people. And this is is fascinating. So 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 46, read this. Solomon praying to the Lord on behalf of God's future people. He says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near... Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. 
Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And catch this. He says, And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. So Solomon, almost prophetically, is saying, God, if your people end up in exile, guess where they are right now? In exile. Babylonian captivity. And he says, if they repent, they're in verse 48, repent and pray toward their land, right? The city. What is Daniel doing in Daniel 6, verse 10? It says he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees and prayed. And so Daniel is praying toward Jerusalem. It's like he understands the story that came before him, the prayer that Solomon prayed and and he prayed grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive daniel's praying this grant us compassion in the sight of those who have carried us captive that they may have compassion on us on me even in this moment where this edict has gone forth so what's happening here is daniel and daniel 6 is hearkening back to this prayer in first kings 8 and then what happens verses 16 through 18 in daniel 6 we see daniel in the lion's den is what happens The Lord does not answer his prayer by causing the people to give Daniel compassion, does he? If this is what Daniel is praying, and I think we've got pretty good evidence that this is what is happening here. God very specifically and intentionally refuses to answer his prayer. Daniel doesn't know why. Daniel in this moment is fearful for his life. At this point, Daniel has served in Babylon for about 70 years. 70 years. That means he's over 80 years old. And he's about to get thrown into a hungry lion's pit. There's no way this 80-plus-year-old man is going to survive these hungry lions. See, for us, we have perhaps become overly familiar with this story, and so it's really important that we linger here for a second. We need to feel this tension as if we're reading it for the first time in Daniel chapter 6. This elderly man has been faithful to God, and God does not answer his prayer, and he's about to be killed. Do you feel that tension? Where is the hope? We would cry out, why? He's done all that you've asked of him, right? He's been a great witness to the lost in this kingdom. He's done nothing but bring glory to your name by his example. Why do you refuse to hear his prayer? Why do you allow such a fate to befall him? Where are you, God? See, this doesn't line up with what we, how we want the world to work. Because we want the world to work where we say faithfulness in my life equals blessing from the Lord. But have you ever been there? Maybe you, like me, have thought or said something like this at some point. God, where are you right now? My marriage is falling apart, and where are you? I've lost my job, and where are you? We've had a miscarriage. We want to conceive and are unable to conceive. We've lost a loved one. And where are you, God? I've tried so hard to live faithfully, and it seems like you don't even care. Why would you let these things happen? But in not answering Daniel's prayer, God had something bigger in mind. Something that would bring his name even more glory and reveal a picture of redemption, causing Daniel to be reminded that it is not his character that saved him. It is the Lord's faithfulness to Daniel. For if this story were all about the character of Daniel, God would have answered his prayer. But instead, this story is about the glory and majesty and power of God and his kingdom above all kingdoms. 
his redemptive purposes for Daniel, for the Israelites, and for us in our lives today. And just to further show that Daniel would be receiving no human help, we read that the mouth of the den, in verse 17, was covered with a stone. No human effort could save Daniel. And no human effort did save Daniel. At this point, the king is upset, right? Because the king actually really liked Daniel. That's why he was promoting him so much. And so he likes Daniel, regrets the law he passed. He made this decree in his pride, and he's humbled at the results, realizing his fatal mistake. And so in verse 14, we see that the king tried to think of whatever he could to possibly deliver him, and he came up short. Verse 16, he shows that he hopes that somehow Daniel's God can deliver him. Verse 18, he couldn't sleep. He spent the night fasting, hoping somehow, some way, Daniel might come through this. You see, Darius is bound by his own law to follow through with judgment. He tries everything he can to no avail. He passed judgment and is not able to find a way of redeeming the situation. But God shows himself bigger than Darius's law. In verses 19 through 24, we see the Lord delivers Daniel and he condemns his enemies. Verse 22, we see that the Lord sends his angel to keep the lion's mouths shut, right? Now, now some of you may have picked up on this, but there are many connections between this story in Daniel 6 and the story of Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? Both stories, we see faithful Israelites who've been prospering in Babylon, now condemned after the king passes an edict for his own selfish, prideful glory. In both cases, we see that these people are thrown to certain death. And God's angel shows up to deliver. It's interesting. So there's this angel, which means messenger, messenger from God, who in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, looks a lot like a son of God. Now notice this. The angel does not deliver outside of the furnace in Daniel 3, does he? And he does not deliver outside of the lion's den in Daniel 6. He could. Why not just strike the guards dead before they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire? Why not just create an avalanche to cover the den before Daniel even has to go in there? Who is this guy? Who is this angel? Now, even if you don't think he literally is, he at least points to Jesus, the Son of God. See, what's important about this is that there's a personal nature to the redemptive purposes of God. He is not distant and aloof in suffering. He is with us in the trials he is bringing us into. This angel is with them in the fiery furnace. This angel is with Daniel in the lion's den. Unless we think that somehow these lions just happen to not be hungry, we read then in verse 24 that they were very much ready to eat when Daniel's accusers were thrown in. Before they even reached the bottom, they were torn and their bones broken. This is supernatural, providential act of God. Daniel's name, as we've said throughout this series, means God is my judge. And that is proven true once more in Daniel 6. The king's power was only able to go so far as God permitted. God is the one who put the boundaries on the reign of the king, even better than King Darius could himself. And God is the one who freed Daniel from this judgment. And so when we read these last few verses in 25 through 28, what we see is that the Lord is the hero of this story. Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 
3 ends up confessing the awesome power and protection of God towards Daniel. Right? In verse 26, look there with me. Uh, Darius is making a decree that in all his royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear, not before Daniel, but before the God of Daniel. See, these last few verses um, serve as a bookend to show that in case there was any doubt, this story is not about Daniel's faithfulness, but about the faithfulness of God. Finally, in verse 28, we are reminded that actually Daniel's life, his entire life was spent in exile. This is not a throwaway verse here at the end of this chapter. See, Daniel's entire life was spent in a metaphorical lion's den in Babylonian captivity. But God is the one who guarded him time and again and showed him favor. Not because of Daniel's impeccable character, but because of God's own glory and goodness. See, this whole story is a miniature picture of the oppression of God's people in exile. And so when they would read this, they'd say, oh... This is just like what God is doing with us. And they were to hold on to faith in their one true king, redeemer, and deliverer. And then Cyrus here, it mentions at the very end. Cyrus was the one whom God used to bring about the end of the exile of the Jewish people. He issued a decree, later Cyrus does, that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild. And so we see that God was faithful throughout. And God delivered them. And he continues to deliver, brothers and sisters. So, so in this narrative, we actually see that there are two very dear principles that we should take to heart. And the first one is this. In the midst of trials, we have more hope and comfort than we could ever imagine. See, if this story was ultimately centered on Daniel's faithfulness, then we might despair. Because let's be real. I'll, I'll confess my own heart, right? I am not faithful like Daniel. I struggle to live in the world and not of it. In the midst of suffering, my tendency is to lose hope, to only see my current circumstances and not look beyond. Right? And in general, my prayer life, my day-to-day life, reveal a tendency to be far more concerned with my own comfort than with God's glory. And if you're like me, You need something much more than an example to live after. We need someone who perfectly identifies with us in our suffering and lived the faithful life we cannot. See, the good news is that like the angel who stilled the mouths of the lions, Christ Jesus is with us, defeating our greatest enemies. We are better off than Daniel. For since his time, a true Redeemer and Savior has come. The Messiah is no longer just a future hope, but a hope we have based in a past event. See, the Jewish exiles looked forward to their freedom from captivity. We revel in the freedom we already experienced from a deeper-rooted captivity, from the penalty of sin. The Bible in Psalm 22 tells us what the Messiah is going to say when he comes. And, And Jesus, on the cross, says these words from Psalm 22. He says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And later in Psalm 22, it goes on to say, Roaring lions lay open their mouths against me. See, the concept of a roaring lion in Scripture is not just general suffering, but the justice of God. The Lord roars against violent oppression. That's the theme of one of the Old Testament books, the book of Amos. The Lord roars 
And so the ultimate Daniel, who went into the ultimate lion's den with the ultimate lions, the one who got the punishment that we all need, the one who was torn and ruined by the justice of God, was Jesus Christ. The ultimate Daniel against the ultimate lions allows us to go into our little lion's den with ultimate confidence. See, I can only deal with disease if I know that my ultimate disease has already been dealt with, sin and death. I can only deal with finances if I know that my ultimate debt has already been paid, my debt to God. I can only deal with loneliness if I know that Jesus was ultimately lonely and cut off, that I might be brought in as a son of God. Brothers and sisters, God can rescue you. Even when you've been enslaved to pornography for the better part of a decade, God can rescue you. Even when your marriage seems hopeless, God can rescue you. Even when you failed as a parent and just screamed at your kid for the thousandth time, God can rescue you against all the accusations made against you, true and untrue. I've recently been introduced to a new hymn. It's a new hymn for me, not a new hymn of of its own right, but um, we're going to throw these words up on the screen because it's absolutely beautiful. I love this. I want you to read this with me. It says this, it says, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more and Jehovah knoweth none. You'll never be able to get out into the lion's dens of this world unless you know what the ultimate Daniel did for you. No accusation, no guilt, no shame has the slightest grasp on you if you're in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, you will never tame the lions in your life unless you let God be the untamed lion in your life. See, when you fear God first, you can walk into every lion's den and say, God is my judge, like Daniel. God is my judge. So this is a small thing compared to what he's done for me in Jesus. And in that wonderful book, The Lion, The Witch, In The Wardrobe, the little girl Lucy asks the question and says, Aslan, Aslan, this lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds and he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, unless you fear God and are in awe of what he has done for you, you'll be afraid of a lot of other things. But if you are in awe of what he has done for you, you can walk in to any lion's den on any day and say, this is nothing compared to what Jesus has already done for me. This is how Christians triumph over the world. You can face anything and say, roar away, you lions, roar all you want. The only lions that can really hurt me have already torn Jesus. And in John 16, verse 33, Jesus gives us a promise. And he says this, he says, In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Maybe financial, maybe relational, maybe vocational, maybe persecutional. You will have trouble. Maybe sickness, maybe sorrow, maybe suffering in a variety of ways. You will have trouble. But he doesn't leave us there. That's not the end of the promise. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Christ, you are able to live knowing that your physical health does not get the final say. Neither your employment status nor your marital status is the truest thing about you. 
in the stresses of motherhood, in the depths of depression, in the failures of young adult life, and in the seemingly endless turmoil of those who have lived and experienced lifelong suffering. Christ is with you and has overcome. You will not be ultimately overcome because Christ has overcome. Indeed, the bigger concern, maybe for those who never find themselves in a battle, who are always in a place of safety. If you've never felt like your soul is being torn apart in the midst of a lion's den, that could be a warning sign that something's not right. I'm not saying go look for suffering. That's not the call of the Christian life. But I am saying that that could be a sign that maybe we're too comfortable in this world. I've been there. This is a struggle for me as well. It's easy to be the one outside of suffering, the one outside of struggle, and not feel a need to cling to God as your only hope and redeemer. But God loves to put his people in places where he is their only savior, where he is their only hope, the only redeemer. So take heart, brothers and sisters. His redemption has already begun, but it is not yet completed. We put our faith in the one who sets us free in the present and who will one day finally and fully set us free. So you're able to do this. Live knowing it is not about the amount of faith that you have. It's who your faith is in. So in the midst of trials, we have more hope and comfort than we could ever imagine. But also, number two, in the midst of trials, God has a bigger redemptive purpose than we could ever imagine. God, like King Darius in Daniel 6, is bound by his own law to follow through with judgment. He must punish sin. His wrath must be poured out against all ungodliness. But unlike Darius, God is able to make a way for redemption. See, the beauty of it all is that God does follow through with his law. And he's able to do so by making a way for his people to experience grace through the wrath-bearing, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. See, the reason we keep coming back to Daniel, even in, or to Jesus, even in the book of Daniel, even in the Old Testament, is because Jesus is the climax of the story of Scripture. You cannot fully understand the intention of the author of a book in the beginning of the book, until you've read the whole thing. And what's the point? Is that God so authored the scriptures in light of Christ that we can look at the story of Daniel and see much more than just a moralistic plea to be like Daniel. It is that Christ is the new and better Daniel. The Persian king Darius set himself up as a representative of the gods, and he's ultimately humbled. And as we're reading Daniel, we know that later in the story, there is coming one who is sent from heaven, who is actually and truly the representative of God. Himself to be worshipped as the God-man, the one true mediator, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so many years after Daniel, there would come a day when the hope of the people of God seemed lost. The man who lived the perfect life and was thought to be the Messiah had been crucified, right? The disciples had thought this was our savior. This was our redeemer. This was the man who claimed to be God. And we were we were kind of believing him. But God doesn't die. And so how could this be? See, Jesus, like Daniel, was arrested while at prayer in a private location. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, like Daniel, was betrayed and accused. And just as a stone was rolled over the lion's den, a stone was rolled over the burial place of Jesus, signifying ultimate defeat and death. The big difference, however, is that Daniel emerged without a scratch and Jesus died. 
Daniel feared for his life for a night, and Jesus had already offered up his life. And he was already dead, and he stayed dead for three days in that tomb. All hope seemed lost, as not only was he imprisoned, but he had been torn apart by the fangs of death. But the power of God breaks through in an even bigger way. Just as God had a bigger plan of redemption for Daniel, he had a bigger plan of redemption through Jesus, who had the power himself to conquer the grave in such a way that we might be bought as the children of God. God wants you to know this morning, church, that he will not only bring you out of the trials of life, out of your suffering, out of your struggles and provide a way. He will do more than just get you back to normal, so to speak. He will prosper you. Not only is your debt and your brokenness wiped away where you're just kind of back up to par, you inherit the riches of his grace. The inheritance only suitable for the son of God. You get that. You get the spoils of all of Jesus's victory. If you have trusted in Christ and repented of your sin. Now, this isn't to speak of earthly prosperity. God may or may not give you that. God's economy works much different than ours. See, God cares much more about your eternal happiness than your earthly happiness. And praise God that he does. But even though you may be slayed by death and turmoil in this world, God will bring you through it to a new heavens and new earth in which you will see the reward purchased for you by Christ Jesus. What men meant for evil... God intends for good. We see that throughout Scripture. We see that with Daniel, and we see that even more so with Jesus Christ. This is the power that allows us to risk all for our faith. Because of Jesus, death cannot hold us either. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you are glorious, and you are the hero of every story. You are the hero of Daniel 6, and you are the hero of our lives. I pray this morning that we would be humbled and drawn to love and worship you as we are reminded of your goodness and your kindness towards us. I pray for those here this morning who are suffering, that they may know that you are nearer to them than the angel was near to Daniel in the lion's den. That you are nearer to them than the angel was in the fiery furnace. That you are nearer to them than anyone else on the planet. That you are with them. And that they have hope and comfort. And that you have a bigger redemptive purpose than they could ever imagine. May they feel that tangibly this morning. We pray for your deliverance. God, for those of us who are not experiencing suffering, help us to grow in shepherding and serving those who do. Help us to be able to um, be a witness, a tangible servant of the Spirit who brings comfort to those who need to be comforted. Lord, we pray for our broken world and our broken city that this would be a message that so grasps our heart that we couldn't contain it, that we have to go tell people that there is freedom for the captives, there is healing for the broken, there is forgiveness for the sinner, and there is hope in the midst of lion's dens. Because Christ Jesus is Lord and Redeemer. We pray all this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.